This is Charitable Chit Chat with Kathy and Claire, hosted by philanthropy experts Kathy Sheffield and Claire Meyerhoff. Coming up in just one minute is the interview with the best-known name in the wonderful world of charitable gift planning, Dr. Russell James of Texas Tech. This episode premieres Thanksgiving week, which is intentional because everyone in the field is thankful for Dr. James' groundbreaking research and his talent for translating the technical for frontline fundraisers. In this episode, you will hear Dr. James as you've never heard him before. It's a bit of Russell James unplugged. Learn how he really feels about his work and his unofficial title of plan-giving rock star. Later in the episode, we chat about his family, his hobbies, and he graciously gives his replies to our five fun facts. You'll finally find out the truth. Is Dr. James a cat person or a dog person? All that and more just ahead. And you can hear all our interviews with top names in plan giving by visiting charitablechitchat.com. Thanks for listening on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and iHeartRadio. And remember, Charitable Chit Chat is much more than a podcast. We're your friends in plan giving. This is Charitable Chit Chat with Kathy and Claire, the essential radio show for philanthropy professionals with Kathy Sheffield and Claire Meyerhoff. Welcome to Charitable Chit Chat with Kathy and Claire. I'm Claire Meyerhoff. And I'm Kathy Sheffield. And in this episode, we would like to welcome a guest who actually needs no introduction. If you've been around the wonderful world of planned giving for a while, he's our friend and top expert. Kathy, would you do the honors? Our guest today is Dr. Russell James. Welcome to our show. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Well, Russell, 2020 is quite the year. And we had the first ever virtual National Association of Charitable Gift Planners National Conference a few weeks ago. It was very successful. We're still in the midst of a once-in-a-generation pandemic. And we just had a presidential election with the largest voter turnout. Amazing participation. So as we move ahead, those of us in philanthropy and plan giving are wondering, just what does the future look like? Do you have a crystal ball, Dr. James? What does it say? (laughs) Well, you know, to be honest with you, there's lots of people who have been uh, asking me about, oh, can you talk about uh, upcoming legislation and what's going to change? And, and, uh, And I just don't do that. And what happened was back in 2010, when Congress just allowed the estate tax to completely expire for a year and then bring it back the next year, I decided I was going to get out of the business of prognosticating legislation. And so, uh, so I don't do that. But, uh, you know, there are some things that we can feel pretty confident about in terms of uh, planned giving and and also philanthropy, what, what you might call mega trends uh, that uh, will be making a big difference uh, in in the coming years. Uh, and one of them, especially for folks who have been around in planned giving for a while, um, is is a bit of a challenge, and it's a bit of a challenge because we live in the world of the boy who cried wolf. Uh, that is, we have heard for so long this idea about the eternally forthcoming wealth transfer and how that's just going to massively transform uh, philanthropies. And uh, uh, and yet, since 2010, you know, charitable bequest dollars, the estimates are, are pretty much flat. Uh, no, no major changes. Well, it turns out that if you actually understand some of the demographics, that's not a surprise. And the reason it's not a surprise is that, well, you start with this idea that wealthy people actually tend to die quite old. And it turns out that charitable wealthy people, well, they die older than others of their same wealth category. And so what that means is that the age at which the actual dollars are transferred through estate gifts to charity is uh, exceptionally old. If you look at when the, say, 50% of your dollars from any group would have been transferred. And, And by old, I mean, you know, uh, there, there's uh, one national estimate from Australia that shows that 50% mark at about 
age 90, uh, using some estate tax data from the U.S. that is close to 20 years old. That was age 86 when we hit that uh, 50% uh, mark. So uh, it would have gotten older um, by this point. So, so we're looking at somewhere around, let's call it age 88, uh, is sort of that key age at which about half of your charitable dollars would have been transferred. Well, here's the thing. If you go back to uh, those who are in that age group, these are not the baby boomers. These are, in fact, the group that was referred to as the baby bust. During the middle of the Depression, people uh, dramatically reduced the number of children that were being, uh, that were being had. And uh, as a result, there was a dramatic decline uh, in uh, fertility and uh, just fewer people being born. Uh, and uh, we're actually just about at the very bottom of that baby bust in terms of folks who are, say, around that age 88 um, uh, age range. So that's why over the last you know 20 years, since uh, the year 2000, we've been pretty much flat in charitable bequests. Now, what's happening is We've reached the bottom of that, which means, honestly, for the next 20 years, it's nothing but up, 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 because eventually then the baby boom generation starts having the impact uh, and getting into those age categories where the actual dollars are transferred uh, to charity. And beyond that, it's not just that we're going to have more people. It's that those people are going to be different, and they're going to be different in a couple of key ways. One way they're different is they're much more likely to have higher education, which is a strong predictor of leaving a charitable bequest. But even more powerful than that is that they're much more likely to be childless. And that is by far the most powerful indicator of whether or not somebody leaves a uh, charitable gift uh, in their uh, will at the end of life. So all of those sort of mega trends suggest that, well, we're right now at what essentially you might call the very uh, bottom, the very base of, uh, of a mountain climb that's going to be going on for the next uh, uh, quarter century at least, uh, at least in plan giving. Right. Because if you look at the demographics and you think about the baby boom, those are the people that were born right after World War II. The war was over. My parents got married in January of 1946 and uh, had my brother in 1948, and he's now 72. And so he is sort of your typical baby boomer, like so many people like him. And so those people are now in their early 70s mm -hmm. and they will be growing older. Exactly. Sure. So you can kind of see how gradually that moves into mm -hmm. really the age category where the dollars are transferred tends to be the later 80s. Uh, and so um, that is uh, nothing but up in terms of demographics, at least for planned giving. So uh, it's, a, it's a good space to be in so that you can claim credit for all of that growth over the next few years. <laughs> You know, we've been talking about this intergenerational wealth transfer for 20 years. Yes. And so it, it's sounding like that we've been a little premature in yes. our excitement for that and our anticipation of it. And, you know, just hearing you reflect on this just reinforces that it wasn't a false hope. It's just that we haven't gotten there yet. Um, so some of our, 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 boards and our bosses that we've been speaking with about this have probably been anticipating it a little bit sooner. So this is a really good opportunity for us to, to share um, this information with them just to manage that expectation um, and to introduce the concept that it's now that we're going to be um, experiencing that great wealth transfer. Yeah, it is. Go it's ahead. what well, and it's what people have been referring to in our industry is the the largest and the greatest opportunity for philanthropy in the history of the world is this is this opportunity. So well, and, and let me also share the flip side of that, uh, which is this is a mega trend that will be very powerful and it will result in lots of uh, transfer of dollars to charitable organizations but not necessarily to your charitable organization right. <laughs> you're and right what i mean by that is is a couple of things uh, one of course is we not only need to um, uh, need to uh, encourage those gifts, but we need to steward those donors all the way through. These are revocable gifts, and we do see a relatively 
massive amount of end-of-life volatility in the charitable component of an estate plan, really in those last, say, three to five years of life. But beyond that, we have to understand who I like to describe as the ultimate competitor. The ultimate competitor for the charitable bequest dollars for organizations is the Private Family Foundation. And, and let me explain why that is. Uh, the Private Family Foundation is an entity that is named after the donor, the donor's family, follows the donor's instructions, their values, and lives forever, uh, theoretically. Uh, and so it is such a powerful uh, instrument. Uh, now, when I say powerful in uh, the most recent um, uh, data from the uh, IRS, if you look at estates over $5 million, 76% of all charitable bequest dollars go to private family foundations. Now, this is important because when you're talking to um, uh, boards or you're talking to uh, CEOs or CFOs, they're not particularly interested in delivering value to donors. They're more about, we just want unrestricted gifts. And you've got to understand that one thing we know about large gifts in estates, large charitable gifts, is that they come with instructions. And there's a reason for that. It's not just that if the gift is large, people want to put instructions with it. It also, we know from experimental research, works the other way. The more instructions people are allowed to put with a gift, the more they want to give. So it's very important for us to create a visualizable uh, outcome, uh, ideally an outcome that has some element of permanence to it in order not only to attract the gifts, but to attract larger and larger gifts. You know, one of my favorite strategies for people that say, well, how do I get a donor to reveal the size of the gift? Or how do I increase that size of the gift? It's very straightforward. It's simply to ask the donor, have you ever thought about how you'd like that gift to be used? And then oftentimes you may get a response of, oh, no, I hadn't thought about that. Well, the reason I asked is, you know, you remind me of another donor who I was working with. And what she did was, and then you share a story. You know, maybe it's a story about, uh, uh, so for example, I work in the financial planning department here at Texas Tech. It might be a story about, uh, you know, I was working with a donor and she spent her whole life helping other people get their finances in order. Uh, and she recently signed a new will that one day will create a permanent professorship for our department. Uh, now that gift starts at about a million and a half dollars, but it creates a permanent faculty line. What happens when you tell a story like that is you're going to get a reaction. Now, maybe that reaction is going to be, oh, no, 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 I, I wouldn't be at that level, at which case you can tell another story. Maybe it's a story about a scholarship, which is starting at a much lower level. But again, I'm telling stories about a gift impact that, and this is critical, that has permanence. Even in experiments, when people are reminded of their own mortality, if we describe the same charity as making an immediate impact or making an impact that uh, is a lasting impact, people if they're reminded of their own mortality, they will give more to that second description that has some sense of permanence, not to the first. Now, if they've not been reminded of their own mortality, the first description actually works better. The immediate impact description works better. But when we're talking plan gifts, we need to be talking using permanence language, permanence structures, things, those things are very attractive, especially as people are thinking about the reality of their own disappearance. Permanence becomes very powerful. Powerful. Now, I say this because there's always a challenge where you're going to have administrators that say, oh, no, don't have those conversations because we want the unrestricted gifts. You'll get those gifts, but they'll tend not to be nearly as large as they could have been if you talk to the donor about the kind of impact they could make with those gifts. And what you have just said is the experience that I've seen in working with donors and the gifts that I've seen become mature where they've realized and you've been able to go back and look just to see exactly how 
the donor and the organization work together, um, whether or not it was disclosed in a way that you were talking about, or whether or not it was one of those Merry Christmas surprise gifts. And, um, and it's interesting. One of the things that I, I was thinking you were going to touch on was donor advice funds. And because even with the, the family foundations, which I, I think are significant and will be a huge mega trend, exactly like you just said, but some of the reading and research I've done on that, not research like your research, but research that I've done on it shows that at second and third generation, it starts to significantly shift from the original purpose and the original values of the family. And I've, I've wondered how donor advised funds might replace some of those family foundations because then that sense of permanency is still there and administered, well, with regards to their values and is administered by somebody who's kind of a, a, a person not necessarily tied to that family. Um, so what are your thoughts on how donor advised funds might be competing with family foundations in the future? Well, you know, they certainly are uh, a, a competing type of entity. Uh, they are for donors. They are cheaper. They are easier. Uh, they accomplish many of the same goals, um, but not all of the same goals. Uh, you know, there, there is uh, expected control of the funds, which is different than legal control of the funds. And the control over multiple generations, as you pointed out, Kathy, that, that's much more of a challenge. Now, of course, there are some hybrid products. There's field of interest donors advised funds where there's a bit more uh, restrictions on where those gifts can be used. And, uh, and so there are some hybrid possibilities there as well. Uh, but I think it's important to understand that as, as rapidly growing as donor advised funds are uh, for the ultra high net worth community, uh, the private foundations is still where those dollars are going. And, and that's one of just the fundamental realities of this particular uh, field of giving. You know, in uh, current giving, you may think it tends to be skewed towards a few wealthy donors. That's nothing compared to estate giving. Estate giving, the dollars are dominated by uh, a few, uh, uh, just a few estates, a handful of estates. Uh, and that is true with national level data, both in the U.S. and other countries that I've worked with. Um, it's it's nearly impossible to predict what the revenue is going to be from even national level charitable bequests because, you know, um, maybe Bill Gates dies and maybe he doesn't. Uh, and that's going to move the needle right there by itself. Uh, so, so it is the case that, uh, uh, that there is a lot of variation uh, and that the dollars are really driven by the extreme folks. Uh, and in many cases by folks who are giving 90% or more of their estate. Uh, that's a very rare type of person, but it is the type of person that actually uh, constitutes a, a bulk of the dollars that are transferred. So uh, it, it, is this, it is this very weird space where the dollars are dominated by just a handful of folks who give a very large share or uh, are, of course, very wealthy, um, uh, very likely to be childless. Uh, and, and it is so interesting to me as a researcher, because to understand that in this field, uh, in particular, more so than in any other area of giving, it's all about the outliers. The outliers dominate all the numbers. They control everything. It's not about the haystack. It's about the needle, right? And yet many of us work with metrics that completely ignore that, that if we have any metrics at all, they're just, oh, everybody counts as one. Uh, our legacy society increased by, you know, uh, 10. Uh, and so that, that's the metric that we use. And, and it is fascinating to me that the metrics are so dramatically different from what actually drives the charitable dollars in this space. So, you know, as a researcher, I'm sort of fascinated by uh, how these things, uh, how these things take place. That was such great insight. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's a perspective I hadn't really thought about. So I, I really appreciate that. So Dr. James, you started your career as an estate and gift planning attorney, mm -hmm. and then switched to the nonprofit world, working in gift planning for a college and then becoming president of that college, Christian, uh, Central Christian College. Mm -hmm. uh, then you held professor positions at two other universities before coming to the great state of Texas and yes. going to Texas Tech. No income taxes. Um, Woo. 
And then you held, uh, <laughs> sorry, for those, for those listening right now, I, I just held that. up, I just held up my, well, and for those listening, I just held up my TCU, TCU. my TCU You're water wrong. glass because we had a wonderful football game with Texas Tech last weekend. <clears throat> yeah. We're, we're anyway. having problems this year. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so are we actually. Um, so Dr. James, that's been a lot of academic experience. That's wonderful that you've had, which has led you to what you've become known for, which is your research. And at what point in your career did you realize that there was such a great need for this research and that you were able to take your fairly niche topic to our great big world of, of charitable gift planning in our society? Sure, sure. Well, it may not be as much of an inspirational story. The reality is after I had been college president for about five and a half years, and you know, the school was very successful, two capital campaigns. We had more than tripled our on-campus enrollment and built a lot of new buildings. And, uh, and, uh, uh, and when that uh, ended, um, to be honest with you, my career goal was to not be anyone's boss. I was tired of managing people, just wanted to be in the classroom doing teaching and research, uh, and uh, did that uh, uh, briefly at University of Missouri, and then for a number of years at University of Georgia. Um, and uh, what happened was, I, I sort of got the offer you can't refuse uh, to uh, come to West Texas here at Texas Tech University. And uh, most people don't realize, but uh, the largest financial planning program in the country is actually here at Texas Tech University. And that was a big deal because they were the only program large enough to say, if you come here, um, we'll allow you to just focus on charitable financial planning. Uh, and so uh, that was over a decade ago now uh, that I was able to uh, come and uh, build this program. And uh, so it's really just been an opportunity for me uh, to focus on something that, you know, that I've always cared about and uh, had the opportunity to uh, practice in as an estate planning lawyer, but also as a plan giving uh, officer, uh, and then really just focus in on that. Uh, and it was about that same time that, uh, you know, having made tenure and uh, then uh, sort of looking out beyond the academic conferences of getting involved with the uh, um, uh, National Conference on, Conference on Philanthropic Planning and uh, um, really just going from there. You know, since that time, it's been very much a uh, an iterative process where I'll come out and share some research, and then I get questions uh, and 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 understand what is it that is the felt need in terms of the fundraising practitioner. What are they asking? What would they like to know? And then I go back and kind of work on that, and then you know come uh, back and forth. And, and I'll joke with people, but it's but I'm serious about it. We'll be out at a conference, somebody will raise their hand, and they'll say, "Well, what about this?" And, and I'll say, you know, "I don't know. Uh, give me about a." year and a half and I'll come back to you on that. <laughs> yeah, awesome. the re the research has just been fascinating and I've been in plant giving for maybe about 13 years mostly, you know, in, in the marketing and writing and communication side of it. And and maybe like a year in I maybe saw your first article somewhere and then it's sort of a little bit like that and then I was at a local CGP meeting in Raleigh, North Carolina where I was living and Steve Watt who at the time was the director of plant giving at uh, NC State University and he got up and welcome the crowd. And I still remember what he said. He said, have you heard of Dr. Russell James? I sleep with his research under my pillow at night, hoping that it, it seeps in while I'm sleeping. And everyone was like, oh, and I thought to myself, oh, yeah, I read about that. And now, you know, years later, you're headlining these conferences, you're sought after on everybody's webinar, you're on our podcast, and every single one of our guests on Charitable Chit Chat with Kathy and Claire, everyone mentions you. So we have to give you this little bit of this designation of being a rock star. So how does it feel to be the rock star of plan giving? So I was having a conversation with my 16-year-old daughter two days ago and um, trying to explain to her what I did, right? And the only way that I could translate it for her, which allowed her to understand it, is I said, it's kind of a little bit like Comic-Con. If you had a tiny little, uh, a, a, you know, a magazine or a graphic novel that uh, that uh, a few hundred people followed, but for those few hundred people, they're really interested in that. And uh, so uh, her response was, 
that's weird. That's really weird. So in my 16-year-old daughter's mind, um, that's her perspective on, uh, on, on all of that. But no, it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's a great opportunity. I, you know, look, I will be honest with you. There, you know, at, in, for a number of years, I just did academic research, publishing in academic journals, which, you know, obviously I've continued to do and, you know, published over 75 academic journal articles and all that sort of thing. But when I first started going out and working more with practitioners and people started getting interested in listening, um, it made me much more careful uh, about the research that I do, the comments that I would make, um, because early on, I would have a conference where, and this happened to me, where uh, somebody asked a question, you know, I was presenting on, somebody asked a question, I made an offhand comment, and then a year later, I'm back there, and somebody says, oh, well, we completely changed how we did that at our organization. I'm like, why is that? Well, because you said in a presentation that blah, 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 and I'm like, oh, that was just an offhanded comment, and so um, so I uh, honestly, I, I try to be um, I, I, I try to spend 10 times as much making sure that what I'm saying is not only accurate, um, but has a bit of triangulation. So I'm very confident that you can take this and use it and it will be effective. Uh, because honestly, um, these people are, are representing some really important causes. And I want to make sure that what I'm, uh, uh, the advice that I'm giving is, uh, uh, is something that, that's uh, helpful for them. And I guess al along those way, uh, along that line, I do have to say that I have made one dramatic transformation when it comes to giving advice. When I first started presenting at conferences, people would ask me, uh, whatever the question might be, you know, what should I do about blah, blah, blah. And I would just jump right in and start saying, oh, well, you do this and then this and this and this. And I had to learn to stop doing that. I had to learn to first ask them, what metric are you trying to move? What number is it that's important to you? Because I had been under this sort of underlying assumption that the goal was to get estate dollars to your organization. And what I've learned over the years is that almost nobody lives in that world. Almost nobody lives in a world where their performance is uh, or their goals necessarily are measured by the things that will get the dollars to the organization. And so once I know what their metric is, once I know what their number is, then I can start talking about, oh, well, you want to move, say, number of legacy society members. Okay, well, we can do this. Let's do a survey, uh, and uh, you'll get a lot of hand raisers. Uh, it's technically not actually raising new gifts, but your boss doesn't know the difference, and so, you know, we'll just put them in there. And, you know, it, anyway, it's this idea of understanding that for me to give advice, I have to start with what's the number you're trying to move. So you said something earlier that touched upon my next question, which is sometimes you'll find out that someone took something what you said and like ran with it. So when you're doing your research or in, in your work, do you keep in mind at all that you do have this elevated status and, and that you're more careful maybe about things that you say or, or the types of research that, that you do? How much of an impact does that have on what, how you go about your work, knowing that you are you know, the top guy? Well, it, you know, it, it is uh, it is very impactful. It is very meaningful because, um, you know, I I, I don't want to make a mistake. Uh, I I don't want to make an offhanded comment. And the other thing is, it's not just about saying something that is correct. It's about translating it in a way that is going to help people be more effective in their application. And, and so part of the iterative process that I talked about earlier, where I'll present and people will talk and all that sort of thing is I want to hear what do they say back to me and what do they do with this information? Because I've, in many cases, I've really had to change the message um, because I thought I was clear with what I was saying. But then they went and did this thing, which I would say, no, 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 don't, don't do that. And so I've had to, you know, then uh, correct, uh, um, uh, well, not necessarily correct, but maybe emphasize uh, that sometimes I will, you know, I, I will uh, um, realize things that, that can be um, uh, uh, interpreted in the, in the wrong way. 
let me give you an example. So we've done some tests to show uh, that um, if you um, uh, if you ask somebody about leaving a gift in a will, uh, and then uh, you ask them about if they happen to have any family members uh, uh, that uh, would have appreciated uh, their support of this cause, um, it could be living, could be deceased, and then we ask them about well, tell you know, tell me about that person's connection to the cause. If we then bring up the idea of a tribute gift uh, or a memorial gift in a will, that has a really strong attraction for about one out of three, one out of four folks, if they have that, that connection. So uh, it's, it's a, it can be a very powerful strategy. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I had shared that and then I had somebody who had gotten that piece of information and they used it, but they used it in a way that some of you may may know that one of the things I often say is if you want a larger audience, don't lead with death, right? Uh, and they had used it in a way where they sent out an appeal letter that had this older woman showing the photograph of her deceased son and telling the story about the, you know, and 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 I just sort of looked at that with kind of you know a bit of shock and that recognition of okay I need to change my messaging so we're not getting these sort of things you know and he was coming to me saying hey we tried your idea it didn't work uh, you know mm. and so uh, you know so I, well tell me what you did because look as a researcher I'm just as interested in things that don't work as things that do work because they, we learn about behavior that way you know and then I saw that and I realized okay um, this should not be happening so how do I change my message so that you know so that we don't have communications that you know that that lead with death um, uh, because of the natural reaction we're going to get from that which is you know people are going to throw it away. Um, so, uh, so, so yeah, you, you know, I, I, I tried to be um, very careful, uh, not just in being accurate, but in uh, saying things in ways that people are going to use uh, in a helpful and constructive way, because there's lots of ways to do it wrong, especially when we're talking about a sensitive topic like uh, another person's uh, own mortality. When you are look back at the research that you've done, what what outcomes have surprised you? You know, so uh, Kathy, at least 90% of what I do uh, is to provide an experimental, statistical, or empirical uh, evidence to essentially say, yeah, what Kathy said. In other words, what I do is uh, most all of the time is to take the strategies that um, effective, seasoned, experienced, successful fundraisers have learned over decades uh, and provide a bit of empirical support for that. So what's very important in my research, because as I mentioned, I'm very sensitive about making sure that what I'm telling you is, is correct, is that I want to see triangulation. And what I mean by that is I want to see this same answer coming up from 12 different directions and they keep coming to the same place because the more triangulation I get, the more confidence that I have in that answer. So to give you an example, some of my earlier research focused on neuroimaging where we put people in a brain scanner and we had them make charitable estate planning decisions. Now, uh, some of the uh, research from that shows that people engage in visualized autobiography and we can tell that by the uh, particular brain regions that are being engaged and the more visualization uh, that takes place, the more likely they are to, to make the uh, gift. Then my um, colleague and sometimes uh, co-author, Dr. Claire Routley in England, uh, she did her dissertation through in-depth qualitative interviews of those who had included a gift to charity in their wills, asking them about what led to that. And her finding, I mean, it's a whole 400-page dissertation, but her finding was that it was really about the life story and how that uh, gift or, or the cause or the organization fit into uh, the life story. And so, uh, so we begin with 
you know, this brain scanning research, and then you look at the qualitative in-depth interviews. And then the next step is to, okay, well, let's test it. So we tested a bunch of different messages on which message is going to shift people's attitudes about leaving a gift in a will. You know, should we share with them about, hey, you know, the kids are probably going to blow that inheritance in about six months anyway, or, you know, should we share with them the statistics about other people doing it or, you know, and it turned out by far the most powerful message was to communicate just a short story about uh, what I call a living donor story. Uh, Somebody like me who has included a gift in their will that reflects their life story that creates this social norm. And so then experimentally, we can tell that, okay, we assign people to different groups and this is what works. And so the idea here is that we are um, we are learning these things in different ways, and they're all pointing to the same answer. Um, and you know, and uh, by the same uh, by the same token, um, Jeff Comfort likes to share his strategy. And of course, he's been in the field for decades of uh, uh, of his three stories strategy, which is uh, you uh, talk to the donor, uh, and uh, you know, like if I was talking to uh, an alum from Texas Tech, you know, I'm uh, I will start out with two stories and maybe one about our basketball coach and uh, another one about all the construction on campus. And then the third story will be, you know, something along the lines of, uh, oh, and Mary Smith did a neat thing. Now, did you know, Mary, she graduated two years before you? Uh, no, well, Mary recently signed a new will that uh, one, uh, well, Mary spent her life helping other people keep their finances in order. And she recently signed a new will that one day will create a permanent scholarship for our financial planning students. And then the fourth step is you shut up and you take a drink and you see what their response is to that. So again, Again, you know, Kathy, this is this is the idea where you're taking this technique from somebody who's been in the field and is an icon in the field and has been very effective. And essentially, for me, spending a decade to explain why that works, right? That, well, we've got what's called a social norm statement, and this is people like me do things like this. And so you're referencing how the person in the story is is like them, and you're connecting in their life story with the gift that they made, and you've and you've got permanence in there, and, uh, and we've got this, uh, we don't lead with death because that creates avoidance. And so we start with these other stories, and along the way, we mentioned the death-related topic. And, you know, so just all of these components, but really it's just sort of the academics take for what pragmatically and practically we know this works. And so it's sort of about unpacking a little bit of the why, but also some of the evidence that shows like that, you know, this is not, uh, this is not just uh, uh, war stories, like there's actually reasons why, why this works. So, um, so most all of what I do is not surprising. I will say, though, that one thing that has uh, been surprising to me is the more recent research, and and not because of the direction of the effects, but because of the magnitude of the effects. And 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 that is the space where I am right now. And uh, you know, Kathy, I'm sure you've heard, uh, and and Claire, you may have heard me talk about this, that I'm realizing that the most powerful, dramatic transformation that you can make for a donor is to get them to make a gift out of their wealth rather than make a gift out of their disposable income, their pocket change. And that that single act, the first time they do it, can be transformational for their giving from that, that, uh, that point forward. Now, again, Kathy, you'll recognize, I'm just saying something Eddie Thompson's been saying for decades, but I am now realizing the magnitude of that power. You know, a couple of years ago, publishing research using over a million nonprofit tax returns to see what predicts over a five-year period, the growth trajectories of nonprofits, essentially all the nonprofits in the country, and, and finding out how powerful it was if that organization was raising any gifts uh, from, say, stocks, bonds, real estate, those uh, important asset categories. Now, look, I'm a researcher. We love to publish these statistically significant results that you know uh, move the needle like a dollar and 25 cents and nobody really cares, but it still gets published because the statistics are good, right? <laughs> but when I saw these results, I mean, we're talking about 
organizations that raise gifts only from cash, essentially just their fundraising five-year uh, trajectory, uh, they're just keeping up with inflation. Organizations that consistently raise gifts, including gifts of securities, their growth rate on average was six-fold greater. So it was really the magnitude that blew me away mm -hmm. that that that, uh, that was happening here. And, you know, Kathy, right now, my, my latest sort of thing that I'm focused on is exactly what you've talked about. How do we communicate to people who are not in plan giving what it is that we do? And I think there's something to this idea of communicating to other people inside the organization that yes. what we do is major gifts of assets. And it's that last piece that most fundraisers don't have a clue about. Like they understand write a big check. They don't have a clue about major gifts of assets yes. because you can't ask for a gift of an asset if you don't understand what a capital gain tax is, right? Um, it's uh, You just can't do it. Uh, you, you can't ask for a gift of asset if you don't understand that we can avoid those capital gains taxes with a gift. And really, it would help a whole lot if you understand that we can not only avoid those capital gains taxes, but we can even give you lifetime income off of those uh, without having to pay those upfront capital gains taxes. And, uh, and, and to understand that, oh, a major gift of an asset, you know, you can sign a deed to give those inheritance rights and uh, to a farmland uh, or house and, and take a immediate tax deduction, right? So, so I think that's kind of the, the, the nose in the camel's tent, so to speak, because every administrator, their ears perk up with major gifts. And if we say major gifts of assets, why? Well, it comes back to the psychology, not only that uh, gifts of securities, but of course, uh, this idea that we now have national level data that shows over a quarter of a century of data that shows what happens to people's current giving when, the, when they put a charity into their estate plan for the first time. Because what is that? That is a gift from my wealth. And all of a sudden, my wealth becomes donation relevant. And we see two, four, six, even eight years later, this dramatic sustained increase in current giving, about 77% increase. Uh, that is, uh, uh, is it, it's really just the magnitude of the, uh, of the changes that are taking place the first time somebody makes a gift from their wealth rather than from their disposable income. As Kathy Sheffield likes to say, she helps make uh, helps donors make their best gift possible. Exactly. And a lot of times that's not just a cash uh, gift writing writing that check. So you mentioned some research you're working on now. What's your next next bit of research? What's your project right now? Sure. So um, I have about half a dozen small projects working with PhD students. I supervise a lot of PhD students for their uh, dissertation work. Um, but uh, the, uh, to be honest with you, the, the big thing I'm working on uh, is a uh, is a book uh, that I thought would be about a six month project. Um, I'm now starting year three of that, <laughs> um, and uh, uh, and honestly, I just uh, every day, um, uh, four hours a day, at least twenty hours a week uh, for now starting my third year focusing on this. And, and this is, uh, it's actually, I think, going to ultimately um, uh, be a series of four short books, uh, but it is really about the idea of storytelling and how do we do that in a very practical, effective way uh, to uh, that, that translates all of the research that's been done uh, by researchers in the academic field, uh, and how do we translate that in a meaningful way for uh, for major gifts fundraising. Uh, and so uh, right now, it's actually a, a four-part series. Uh, the first part is called the Epic Fundraiser. Uh, and this is about the uh, universal hero story called the monomyth and how we can incorporate, the, incorporate those elements into the donor hero story. Uh, and, uh, and in particular, how in that, uh, in that universal hero story, that the fundraiser has a fundamental role. And that fundamental role is of the guiding sage that helps the hero along that journey. Uh, then the second part is a, uh, is called the Socratic fundraiser. So it's the very practical, how can you be that guiding sage for your donor hero? What 
questions do you ask that guide them through that process? Uh, and then the uh, third uh, part is uh, at this point called the behavioral fundraiser. It's all about the words and phrases to use and the ones not to use and trying to summarize all of the experimental data. And then finally, the fourth part is called the primal fundraiser that explains how this behavior that donors engage in actually has its or has natural origins and how if you understand those, then it keeps you from doing uh, bad things when it comes to fundraising and understanding the messages that, that are going to work. So hoping for that to be out summer of uh, next year. Uh, and that is my big project of the moment. And I will say that I've been working on this, as I said, for a number of years now, but I'm working on it not to make it large, which is what academics love to do, <laughs> but I've actually been working on it to make it small. Uh, so I feel a bit like trying to write Dr. Seuss books where it's just, you know, keep it, keep it very short, uh, short sentences, active verbs, and keep it simple uh, so that, uh, you know, fundraisers are busy. They don't, they don't want to read an academic tome of, you know, thousands of pages. And so uh, trying to, to make it uh, as short and uh, accessible uh, in that way. Uh, so, so that's the next project. Look for that, uh, hopefully, uh, this, uh, this summer. That sounds great. And our listeners are listening right now to Charitable Chit Chat with Kathy and Claire. I'm Claire Meyerhoff, along with my partner in podcasting, Kathy Sheffield. And our special guest is Dr. Russell James of Texas Tech a top researcher in the wonderful world of planned giving. And we're going to move our conversation now to sort of our unplugged section of our show. So, Dr. James, when you unplug from the world of planned giving, what do you do? Tell us a little bit about your hobbies or your family, or how do you spend your time when you're not writing your books or doing research or teaching classes and presenting webinars and being on podcasts? Oh, sure, sure. Well, uh, so I have two daughters. Uh, my older daughter is a junior in mechanical engineering at Texas Tech here, and uh, my younger daughter is also a junior, but in high school. Uh, and uh, um, and so family's a big part, but uh, what I do is something completely inappropriate. I am into uh, ultra marathons. And so I uh, do these ridiculous runs uh, that uh, um, take place kind of all over the world. At least they used to before they shut everything down. Uh, I don't want to mislead the listeners. I am not fast but I am quite stubborn. <laughs> and so the long distance races uh, uh, work well for me. And so I uh, do trail races. I rarely do the road races, uh, um, uh, but like to uh, get out into the uh, wilderness uh, here or in other countries and um, see how far I can go before I fall over. So where was your favorite location that you've done an ultra marathon? Oh, wow. So I do these, uh, there's a, a race, a racing series called uh, Four Deserts, um, Racing the Planet. And uh, so it's a nice, comfortable little race where what you do is um, you do six marathons in five days. Uh, and you, uh, while you're doing that, though, you have to carry th everything on your back that you're going to survive on for the week. Uh, and so uh, you do a marathon a day for five wow. days. And then on day five, you do a double marathon because, you know, uh, that's the most comfortable way to do it, of course. Uh, and uh, I have done these in the Namibian desert in Southwest Africa. Wow. I've done these uh, going across the, the steppe in rural Mongolia. I've done these with uh, uh, in Patagonia. My most recent one was on the South Island in New Zealand. Uh, and uh, next summer I'm scheduled to do one in the Caucasus Mountains in the Republic of Georgia. So uh, those are, um, you know, the, those are uh, the uh, things that I really like to do until COVID shut everything down. And so once that opens back up again, I'm, I'm hoping to, to, uh, do that. And it also leads to one very odd uh, not, and another very odd behavior that I engage in, which is I, um, <laughs> uh, I have a treadmill desk. So all day long, oh. I'm walking as I'm mm. typing or writing or, you know, all that sort wow. of thing. And so uh, for me, it's relatively easy to get my body used to doing over 100 miles a week just by being in the office and answering emails. So <laughs> that's how I try to combine these things. I'm That's exhausted really thinking about it. I'm just and exhausted. You, and you said something earlier about um, not being fast, but being uh, steady. And I think that's maybe a metaphor for the world of planned giving, where it's not about being fast and getting those dollars in tomorrow. It's about the long haul. So do you find that there's a relation between your favorite hobby of these marathons and the world of planned giving? 
Yeah, you know, I think there's something to be said for that idea of uh, of sticking with something for an extended period of time, uh, and the uh, and, and the uh, positive experiences you get out of that. Okay, now we're going to do our five fun facts, and we're going to ask you five questions, and they're just facts. So the first one is your first fun fact is what, Doctor James, is your favorite color? Let's go with blue. Oh, good choice. It's very good nice. Not, not, not green, the color of money, blue, like skies. And not red, like Texas Tech. Look at you wearing, he's wearing his Texas Tech shirt, though, today. <laughs> and his tie. I know for those of us who are listening, he's wearing his Texas Tech button up shirt that's bright red. It's perfect. It's actually perfect. And I love Texas Tech. Okay. So it was the home of my birth. Lubbock is the home of my birth. Okay. Fun fact number two we'd like to know, Dr. James. Uh, when is your birthday and where were you born? Since I just told you where I was born. It's technically yeah, so, two questions. But. So, uh, so, um, uh, so I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, and in fact, both my wife and I were born in Kansas City, Missouri and uh, born in August. So I'm a Virgo. Very nice. August what? Oh, August 25th. August 25th. So it's like a Christmas, August, September, October. So four months from Christmas is your birthday. So we'll start shopping. So fun fact number three, which job did you have as a young person, maybe in college or in high school? um, That's very interesting or stands out. For instance, Kathy Sheffield, you may not know this, but Kathy Sheffield once worked as an NBC peacock and dressed up as a peacock and went to local events. And I wore a cowboy outfit when I worked at Roy Rogers and fast food. And I said, howdy, partner, may I help you? So what is your interesting job that you'd like to tell us about from your youth? Wow. I, I just can't compete with that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I worked in retail and at a, and a pizza place and, oh. uh, and uh, you know, the, those sort of uh, 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 normal jobs. So uh, one aspect of work was a little bit different. My, uh, uh, my dad ran uh, rental homes. Uh, so we'd buy mm-hmm. uh, um, often at, uh, at uh, distress sales and uh, really kind of chewed up properties and, and then uh, rehab them and then and rent them out. So I did have one when I was in high school that he, that he gave me to uh, not gave me ownership of, but gave me like, here's your project. And, you know, um, we'll, we'll split some of the profits with you of um, a very, very um, tiny um, rundown house which was interesting because we just ended up selling it. But this house had one interesting aspect, which after we cleaned it up, um, put a very small price on it, people would come in and look. We would see as, they, as we showed them around how long it would take for them to realize that it didn't have a bathroom, that there was an outhouse in the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of like the kind of property that, that gets donated to charities, right? Exactly. Now. Exactly. You have to do a trust with that. And it's like, oh, by the way, no bathroom. By the way, exactly. Yes. Um, so, so that was a different kind of an experience. Wow. So was, was that uh, lack of experience being a project, a flipped house project manager? Or was that the way the house was structured and you just went with it? <laughs> Well, you know, it was uh, it was uh, a property that was uh, bought at a tax sale, so for very little uh, money, and ended up being a, a nice profit as well. Gotcha. But uh, it was, um, uh, yeah, it was uh, uh, it, it was quite the uh, experience to see just how ri- ridiculously bad houses can get. Um, uh, That's a know. great story. I love that. I love that you did that. <laughs> okay, so fun fact number four: Where is your favorite vacation spot? Ah, this is a tough one. Um, So I I would say if I didn't have to force anybody else to come with me, um, (laughs) you know, uh, probably either the Namibian desert or um, I I really liked, I I did a race once in uh, Ecuador uh, in what's called Mount Cotopaxi, which is actually a volcano. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, that was quite the dramatic uh, experience there. So uh, maybe Quito, Quito, Ecuador. My my wife came with me on that, that trip. So very nice. I'd like to go there. And fun Mm -hmm. fact, number five, Dr. James, Dr. Russell James, is Dr. (laughs) Russell James a dog person or a cat person? So I have had a transformation in my life <laughs> on this topic because I was most emphatically a cat person 
Um, my wife's allergic to cats. Oh. So I am now 100% a dog person. And in fact, behind me, uh, outside this room, uh, there are two standard poodles and a multi poo. And those of you that aren't familiar with standard poodles, that's essentially a horse um, that is <laughs> shaped like a poodle. Uh, and uh, so very much a dog person. I love Aww. that you that you are and I have a toy poodle. So our poodles need to get together sometime and play. Yes. I, well, I, I, to be honest with you, Kathy, the first time I experienced a house pet that didn't shed I mean, I am just sold. I am just like, oh my goodness, I am never going back. And Aww. so we have all different variations of poodles, yep. Maltese, whatever things that don't shed. Russell, what are your dog's names? Uh, so um, the uh, uh, the Maltipoo is Lily. We've had her for Aww. a little over a decade. Um, the uh, my daughter actually has the standard poodles. I'm poodle sitting at the moment, uh, and the uh, the older one, she's about a year and a half, uh, is uh, Emma, uh, and the younger one is uh, is a is a puppy, uh, and he is um, uh, the last I've heard. His name's going to be Echo. Uh, so we have um, a tiny little puppy who will soon be a horse. We have a full grown horse, and we have uh, the Maltipoo, who is the the lap dog unfortunately it, because as i mentioned our our multi-poo was the one we've had for um for over a decade when we got uh, when my daughter got the first standard poodle it learned all of its behaviors from the multi-poo so it wants to jump up in your lap just like you know the little dog does but having a horse jump up in your lap is a dramatically different experience so uh <laughs> that's been fun well, that's just great. So, Dr. James, you've been on a lot of podcasts, and now that you've been on Charitable Chit Chat with Kathy and Claire, what are your thoughts on on our podcast? It's just too much fun, you know. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm used to having uh, to be serious through the whole time, so uh, th so this is great. Yes, and I don't think that the whole world knows just how funny people in planned giving are. I mean, you really are hilarious. <laughs> well, death and taxes. I mean, how can you go wrong? Come on. <laughs> Charitable Ranger, Unitrust, gift annuities. We're all nerds at heart, but we love to have fun. So. <laughs> exactly. I mean, any, any kind of field where you can talk about things called crats and nimcruts, I mean, you know, that's just got to be attractive <laughs> to everyone. Well, don't forget about the shark fin. Shark class. fin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I could write, write a yeah. rap song about yeah, that. Exactly, right? I like the nimcrut. I think if we asked, like, went out in the street. So when I worked in news, a lot of times you had to do man on the street where you go yes. out with a microphone and you ask people all yes. the same question. If I went out and said, like, do you know what a nimcrut is? I, about a thousand people. I don't think one person would know what that is. I think it was a dessert. Ooh, How many nimcruts yeah. have you worked on, Kathy? Actually, only probably two. Dr. James? Nimcruts. Yeah, um, not uh, w with clients directly in practice, only about two, and then more just an advisory role for others that are, that are working through those. Right, so it's a bit of a unicorn. Yeah, but again, the outliers drive all the dollars, so we're interested in unicorns we in this field. Charitable mm -hmm. lead trusts like are the unicorn. Yes, and they also drive the dollars there. They do. They do. That's the ultra them. high net worth community, yes, uh, folks. Amen. And by the way, never been a better time for charitable <laughs> trust than right now. Amen to that. Anyway, it's so true. Really? It's so true. Well, oh, experts, yes. Why is that, Kathy? Give me your your quick answer on oh, that. It's one. the rates. It's all about it's all about the 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 yeah. rates and the fact that um, they can maximize their their giving and and they don't want to have to pay the the they want to let charity benefit from from the asset and then return it back to their family or another entity after that. Yeah, Claire, let me give you an example of what the rates are doing for us right now. If somebody donates the inheritance rights mm -hmm. to say uh, farm, a piece of farmland, okay? Right now, if they're age 55, okay, and they donate the inheritance rights, their tax deduction is about 91% of wow. what it would be if they just gave the property outright, okay? 90, and that's for a 55-year-old person, right? Obviously, wow. if they're older, the tax deduction gets mm -hmm. larger. It's just crazy right now, the stuff you can do, at least for the next few months. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And this is why we have Russell James on the show, because he can actually give you an example where I just say it's about the rates. 
<laughs> and I just say, oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> How can I market that? Do my clients want to market that? Well, that's great. Well, Dr. Russell James, thank you so much for being on Charitable Chit Chat with Kathy and Claire. Great to be here. We appreciate you. you. We appreciate you so much. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening to Charitable Chit Chat with Kathy and Claire. You can learn more on our website, charitablechitchat.com. Visit us on LinkedIn, Facebook. I'm Claire Meyerhoff. I'm Kathy Sheffield. And remember, Charitable Chit Chat with Kathy and Claire is more than a podcast. We are your friends in plant giving. Thank you for listening to Charitable Chit Chat with Kathy and Claire. You can connect with Kathy Sheffield and Claire Meyerhoff on LinkedIn and learn more by visiting charitablechitchat.com. We like to say we're your friends in plan giving. And if your organization needs help reaching and engaging your best prospects for charitable plan gifts, let us help you. And you can learn more by visiting charitablechitchat.com slash friends. <laughs>